like we get the privilege of hearing God's written word. Like, you get to hear what God has to say, and he wrote it down for us. Like, so often I come and hear sermons, and it's just, I'm like, okay, this is what we do. Like, we do the worship, and then we do the sermon, and then we go home, and we have food. But we, we get the privilege of listening to God's word, of reading God's word. This time is a privilege, and I, I hope you feel some of that this morning, because that's my heart as I walk into this, is just the privilege that it is to be here with you. <clears throat> I learned to play the guitar in 2003. Uh, it was my junior year of high school, and I thought I was so cool. I, I learned to play in a first song. Um, oh, it escapes me now. Uh, oh, I forget the name of the song. But uh, I learned one song. It was G, C, D, E minor, and repeat. Um, so I just strummed and strummed and kept playing. And I lived, uh, grew up in a, a small town in, in, in Iowa called Council Bluffs. Anybody ever heard of Council Bluffs, Iowa? Yeah, my Iowa fans back there. I like that. So um, Council Bluffs is a uh, smaller town right next to Omaha, Nebraska. So I grew up in Council Bluffs in a small church. And since uh, I grew up in a small church, I was the only kid in the youth group who could play the guitar. So that automatically meant that I was what? the worship leader, <laughs> that poor youth group. Um, so I was the worship leader in my youth group, and I would play the guitar, and I would try and sing, and I really liked it. Like, I liked the credit it would give me. I liked how people would, like, say, hey, good job. They probably meant, like, thanks for trying, but they said good job. And I just loved, like, the feeling that I got from being up there and leading my, you know, 10, 15 other kids in my youth group in worship. Uh, it was my senior year, and I invited my buddy Travis to youth group, and uh, this was a night when I was going to be playing and leading worship, and so I invited Travis to youth group, and he came out, and right before uh, the, the service started, our time together started, um, I, I was practicing, and I stopped practicing, I put my guitar down, and Travis just kind of meandered up and grabbed my guitar and started playing. And he starts, like, making up songs about people in the room, and he's really, really good, like, amazing. And everybody's laughing at him and giving him all this credit. And there I am in the corner with my arms crossed. I was mad at him. You're taking my spotlight. So I did what every good Christian high schooler does. I never invited him back to youth group. <laughs> we find a way of getting life from things that we think are glorious. We ascribe something to be glorious, and we gain life from that. We put our hope in that. We put, we put it as the primary thing in our lives. For me, at that time, it was worship leading. But I think, I think we all do that in different ways. We do that with our careers. We, we try to beat other people and be better and get all the accolades. We, we do that with our kids. We like to compete and compare our kids, whether it's in academics or athletics or just social intelligence. We do that in many facets of our lives where we, we, we put something as glorious and then we gain life from that thing. We are 
glory leeches, sucking life from the thing that we call most glorious. That's where we are. And so this morning, we're, we're still in the book of Habakkuk, and we're going to see how the Babylonians, they did that too. They, they sought life from their glory. They attached their worth to, to their glory, to their nation, and we're going to see the destruction that that brings to that nation and then we're going to see that destruction that it brings into our lives. So the way this will work this morning is we'll spend the first half just kind of unpacking the passage. It'll be more of a Bible study. Um, and then we'll get into some application uh, for us at the end. So would you please pray with me? Jesus, I said earlier that this is a privilege, a privilege to get to read your word. I pray that our hearts would know that, that we would realize the significance of walking into this moment, that you've set this moment apart for, for our growth, for revelation, for the expansion of our souls. So God, I pray that you would minister in revolutionary ways this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. Just a review of where we've been at in the book of Habakkuk, if you've missed any of it. Um, uh, we started off a few weeks back in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. Uh, Habakkuk is frustrated, and he starts to complain to God about this evil nation Israel. That's his nation. And they're corrupt, and there's injustice happening in his nation. It'd be similar to if you and I began to pray for our nation, America. And we said, God, there's evil in America. There's injustice in America. Why are you letting this happen? And so God answers Habakkuk's uh, question and complaint and frustration, and he responds in verses 5 to 11. And he basically says, hey, I agree, Israel's evil there's sin happening, and so I'm going to discipline them, and I'm going to use Babylon to do it. It would be similar to us praying for God to help America and him saying, okay, I'm, I'll help you. I'll send ISIS to come discipline you. And Habakkuk is just blown away, like, God, what are you doing? Why would you let this happen? How could you choose them? They're more evil than we are. And so Habakkuk complains again, uh, to God. And then we see God's response in, in chapter 2, verses uh, 2 to verse 4. And God basically tells Habakkuk, I know you don't get what's happening, but a righteous man lives by faith, even though he doesn't quite get it all. So we spent the last two weeks, Greg spent the last two weeks talking about faith and the importance of faith in your journey and your relationship with God. Kind of that, that, that whole thing uh, keyed around this verse, this verse about faith. And it, it describes two types of people. The first type of person is a puffed up person. We already talked about this. I'm not going to preach on this this morning, but this sets us up. There's the puffed up person and there's the righteous person. And we've talked about the righteous person in the last two weeks. Well, today I want to talk about the puffed up 
man whose soul is not right within him. We're going to pick up in verse 6. Verse 6 of Habakkuk chapter 2. It says, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long? I just want to pause here. That word woe uh, has this idea uh, in the Old Testament of like a judicial indictment. And so what God is saying here as he's speaking is he's speaking out a judicial indictment against Babylon. Here's the charges against Babylon. And so we're going to see four indictments, four woes that God gives to Babylon. So uh, the first indictment is this, is that they're heaping up what is not their own, down here in verse 8. They've plundered many nations and the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and to all who dwell in them. They're stealing what's not theirs and destroying people's lives. Their crime is an unjust acquisition of wealth through extortion at the wholesale destruction of man. That's what's happening here. So that's the, the first indictment. And within this passage, you have the indictment, but you also have the judgment. Like, what's the consequences to what Babylon is facing? We see that in verse 7. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples will plunder you. You made yourself great from stealing from others. Now others will make themselves great from stealing from me, by stealing from you. So instantly there's the indictment and the judgment that goes along with that indictment. And you see this play out, actually, um, in history, where the Medes and the Persians come in. They were a, a people group that the Babylonians had conquered and destroyed. And later on, it's the Medes and the Persians who rise up and destroy Babylon. And so this comes true after the fact. And so we go right into the second indictment. The second woe, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. To set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm by cutting off many peoples. That's the second indictment. It echoes really the first indictment, which is you're taking things that aren't your own and you're making it and using it to build your house. But this one kind of exposes the self-interested purposes of the stealing. They're trying to be uh, safe from the reach of harm. They're taking, taking things and lives of other people in order to make themselves safe and protected from harm. And so they're using violence to make their lives safe. So that's the second indictment. And, and the judgment that goes along with this is that they will forfeit their life and the very stones will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. All that means is the things that you stole are gonna be the things that condemn you and you will forfeit your life as a result. 
heavy stuff that God's bringing against Babylon. Heavy stuff. We get to the third woe already. The third indictment, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. The, the third indictment is that they're building their city, specifically Babylon, through the blood of other people and through sin. This is a messed up people. They're using bloodshed to construct their very capital, the, the glory of their civilization. Behold, it says in verse 13, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? I want to just highlight uh, this little phrase, the Lord of hosts, because I think this will explain verse 13 well for us. This word host could also be written as uh, armies, so the Lord of armies. And so God is saying, behold, is it not me, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies that makes you strong, Babylon? But instead, Babylon, you take credit as if you're the Lord of hosts, as if you know what you're doing, as if you deserve the glory. Instead, your people labor merely for fire. The things you're building will burn, and nations weary themselves for nothing. You use people's labor, and it will be for nothing. It will all be destroyed. It's God. God really wants them to know it's God who builds armies, not Babylon. Babylon, why do you take credit where you don't deserve it? In fact, verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters, as the waters cover the sea. Here, Babylon is attempting to cover the earth with its nation, with its own glory, to literally take over the world. And God is saying, it's not you who will cover the earth with your glory. It is me. My glory will cover the earth. You are in direct competition with me, with God. You're not going to win Babylon. And so God here is setting up his biggest issue with Babylon. The blood is important. The killing of people is important to God. But what is most important is his glory being stolen from him. It's a, it comes down to an issue of who gets, who gets the glory. I do want to just uh, say this before we move on. Um, the glory of the Lord here, this little phrase at the end, is the same uh, phrase of like the glory that's in the temple. So it has to do literally with the presence of God, almost even the same glory of the Lord that hovers over the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, it has to do with a personal in, uh, presence of God in a physical space. And so this, God is saying the whole earth will come to a knowledge about my presence, my physical presence. Babylon, you can't compete with that. It won't be your glory that covers the earth. It will be my glory 
that covers the earth. Fourth indictment. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. This kind of gets a little hard to read. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. What God is saying here uh, is that he's using the metaphor of drunkenness to talk about what Babylon is doing to other countries. And when you think of drunkenness, you think of someone who is completely vulnerable, someone who is humiliated, someone who has been humbled, someone who is incapacitated. And so Babylon is doing all those things to its neighbors, humiliating them, incapacitating them, making them vulnerable for their own glory at the expense of those around them. And so God says, because of that, verse 16, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. Have you ever heard the, the cup of the wrath of God? It's a, it's a biblical uh, word picture that's used. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says, let this cup pass from me. Something that's used over and over to talk about the wrath of God poured out because of rebellion of man. And so God here is saying to, to Babylon, you're going to get my wrath. Here's the four charges that are against you. The consequences for these charges are my wrath. I think it's really important for us to distinguish what God is doing to Babylon and what God is doing to Judah. If you are a follower of Jesus, you would compare yourself to Judah, not to Babylon. Judah, we know, gets the discipline of having Babylon invade, but it's not God's wrath, it's discipline. God uses discipline to correct his children in the same way that parents use discipline to correct their children. God is using the cup of his wrath, his wrath on complete evil over Babylon. When you look at the outside of what's happening to both nations or what will happen, Israel gets destroyed and the end Babylon gets destroyed, it can look identical. In your life, when you compare yourself to people who don't follow Jesus and you say, what's different? Like, I go through pain, they go through pain. Israel's saying, we go through suffering, Babylon goes through suffering. What's different? It's the intent of God that's what's different. In the life of a believer, the intent of God for hardship, for pain, for suffering can be for discipline, for correction, to bring us back to him. We don't get God's wrath because of the cross. We're spared from that. This is heavy, right? I remember... Uh, we were just in Chick-fil-A a couple weeks ago, and my daughter's at the age where she can, like, walk around. 
And so she went into the play place, and we're in there. And like I go in there for the first time. It was like two weeks ago. I'd never been in there. It stinks. Um, no, I'm just kidding. It doesn't stink. Um, so we're in there, and she can't really go up any of the stuff because she's only 14 months old. And um, but she's like walking around the bottom and just super filled with happiness and joy. And it's just a delight to watch her. And then this like two or three year old girl is like just watching Joanne. It just looks like she's like, she just looks bitter. I don't know. That's, as their dad, that's what I felt. So I'm watching this girl every once in a while. She comes by Joy, and she ends up just getting in Joy's face. Joy's 14 months old. This is a two or three year old, and she just screams. Like, just violence. Not, she didn't physically touch my daughter, but just screamed in her face. I was filled with so much wrath. <laughs> like, I just wanted to teach this little kid a lesson. Where's mommy and daddy? This is not how we parent. Instead, I said, we don't yell at little kids. And I took my daughter and we left the play place. Wrath is never given to our kids. Discipline is given to our kids. God never uses his wrath on his children. He uses discipline. And it's for our good. It's, it's to keep us safe, to draw us back to him. We never, as his children, get his, his cup of wrath. We're spared because of Jesus. Now, I'm sure at this point in the sermon, uh, you've been able to relate to Babylon a lot, right? Oh, man, you just, you just go around murdering people and stealing things that aren't yours to build a safe haven for your house. You make your neighbors drunk. You know, like, we can all relate to this. This is easy stuff. Man, super great sermon, pastor. Love it. How do you connect to this? Like, like, how do you actually connect to what's happening and what God's doing to the Babylonians? The reality is, is the same heart of evil that exists in them actually exists in you. The same heart of sin and corruption that exists in them exists in us. And so we might not go around building a nation off of the blood of others, but we have a corrupted, sinful, sinful heart. So how does, how does this relate? Well, one, I think we have, we have a corrupted heart. We can relate a little bit in that, that capacity. But I think I want us to look at specifically this in verse 16. This is God speaking. He says, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. And at the end, down here, he says, utter shame will come upon your glory. Babylon and God are in competition for glory, and Babylon's going to end up with shame, and God's going to end up with glory. They, they will not get the glory. God will take it all for himself. The very thing that brought them glory will ultimately bring them shame. 
will ultimately bring them shame. I want to just recap those for you so you just see them real quick in the passage. Verses 6 to 8, they plunder many nations, and in turn, they will be plundered by nations. They have cut off many people, and in turn, their lives will be cut off. They built Babylon through the destruction of others. In turn, others will bring destruction to them. You reap what you sow. You and I, we reap what we sow. What are you sowing? Are you sowing a life for your own glory, for your own fame, for your own, your own intentions, your own pride? Or are you for God? The very thing that brought them glory will ultimately bring them shame. And I think this is, this is where we can begin to apply it to us. This is true for us. The thing that you think will bring you glory ultimately, ultimately, if it's not God, will bring you shame. Living for glory and anything less than the glory of God will leave you empty, leave you filled with, with shame. I mentioned how my daughter is uh, 14 months old, and my mother-in-law uh, mentioned the other day that there's uh, another girl who was born about the same time as Joy, and the mom posted on Facebook all the words this other girl is saying. And instantly I was like, yeah, but I bet Joy says more. I need to find this Facebook post, prove that she says more, and if she doesn't actually say more, maybe I could lie and say she says a few more words because joy has to be number one. This is what we do. We, we find something to get glory and life from, something that we can make glorious and we can gain life from it. This is why millions of people show up for a Super Bowl parade. The team gets the glory, and we get life from the team. This is what happens in our lives. Maybe it's with our physical, like our body, whether it's our physical strength, our physical beauty, our, how skinny we are. We find glory and life in how we look. But eventually, we find people who are stronger, who are skinnier, who are more attractive than we are. And we are left empty because we don't measure up. Maybe that's with your money, and so you, you want to amass all the money that you can amass, and you begin to compare yourself, but you will always find someone with more money than you. Maybe that's your intellect, your ability to think clearly and to make critical decisions. You will always find someone with a better intellect than you. This is a, an age of social media. I heard recently about someone who would spend five to six hours a day on social media comparing themselves. And if they got more likes, they genuinely felt dopamine go off in their brain. They felt better about themselves. If they had less likes than what they anticipated, they would feel depression and sadness. Sounds ridiculous to a lot of us. But there's things that we call glorious, and then we, like a leech, attach ourselves to that in order to gain life for ourselves. Living for glory and anything less than the glory of God will leave you empty. Isaiah 
God says this in the book of Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. God is not in the business of sharing glory. I don't know if you were here a month ago when I got to preach. It was a privilege to be up here. I just felt like God was doing significant things. And, and I walked away, and I just got so many compliments. Like, great job. We loved listening to the sermon. Oh, that really spoke to me. And I walked out of here with a head as big as a balloon. And I got home, and I feel like God just said, like, Eric, is it for your glory or for my glory? Like, why do you preach? Is it for you or is it for me? God does not share or give his glory to another. The Westminster Catechism asked the question, what is the chief end of man? Do you know the answer? Do you remember the answer? Anybody go through this? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I've talked a lot about us competing with the glory of God but when it comes down to it, like, how do you live for the glory of God? Like, you and I aren't winning Super Bowls every week, and we get to stand up and say, all glory to God. How do you parent for the glory of God? Like, when you discipline your kids well and somebody says, good job, you say, all glory to God. Like, how do you do that? How do you live every day glorifying God? What does that mean? I think this is really significant for us. John Piper, if he could rewrite the Westminster Catechism, and he has in a blog, um, would take this question and he would answer it in the exact same way. He would just delete two words and add one word. He would get rid of the word and to and replace it with the word by. Man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. When's the last time you were satisfied, deeply satisfied in delight with God? When's the last time that you took in his beauty and were just overwhelmed with joy, with satisfaction, with enjoyment? When's the last time you sat down just to enjoy him? Just to be with him? As I wrote this sermon, I felt convicted. It's so easy to do things for God, ask things of God, but to sit and enjoy his presence, we don't do that. Here's what we need to know. Our enjoyment of God initiates out of his enjoyment of us. If you're anything like me, we have a problem enjoying God. Like, we don't know how to do that. We don't do that well. And I think it's because we don't know that God actually enjoys us. Like, the God who made pine needles and water and H2O and everything enjoys you. 
The God who gave you feelings and a family and a home, the God who created cells and the earth and the sky enjoys you. When's the last time you realized he enjoys you? I believe that we don't enjoy God because we're convinced he doesn't enjoy us. We're convinced that we have to perform, that we have to try, and we think God just puts up with us. Like a parent who's like, well, maybe you'll do better next time. I hope you show up and play better at sports next time, buddy. We often think God is tired of us. He's worn out by our inability to do things right. 1 John 4.10 says this. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment for our sins. I remember the first time I told my wife I loved her. Men, do you remember if it was you that said it first? Do you remember the first time you told your wife you loved her. We were in a car, super romantic, right? We were in a car sitting in her driveway, even more romantic. Um, and I just began to tell her all the things I love about her. I love this and this, and it just went on and on and on. And I say all that to say, I love you. I love you. And after I said, I said, listen, I don't want you to like, feel like you have to say you love me back. Totally okay, take your time. Are you ready? <laughs> it's been like a second. Like, I'm pretty awesome. Don't you love me too? I felt so needy, even though I told her, all I said was, you just take your time, just wait. Whenever you're ready. It was like 10 years. No, I'm just kidding. We haven't been together 10 years. It was a long time. Weeks, maybe months, I don't even remember, till she said it. But I, I initiated love, and eventually that was reciprocated. It's given back. This verse is saying, we didn't initiate love, God loved us first. But God's not the needy boyfriend who just needs us to say, I love you too. God is secure in who he is. He delights in us. He enjoys us. He enjoys you, and he wants you to know this morning how much he's crazy about you. His heart is for you. His passion is for you. His love is for you. It's not that you loved God. It's that he loved you first. I want to pose the question, what ways, what ways has God been showing you he loves you? Have you been listening for God to tell you he loves you? Have you been aware that, that the God who made everything is for you? He wants your heart. He wants to know you. He wants to walk with you. He wants the raw connection of being with you. 
When we go back to the Garden of Eden, God made Adam and Eve for what? Why? He made them because he wanted relationship with them. He wanted to enjoy them. That's the same with you and I. He longs for you to know he enjoys you. He's for you. His love is relentless for you. The way that I want us to close our service this morning is uh, simply sitting on the reality that God enjoys you. He loves you. Letting him speak that over your life. Letting him minister to your soul. So we're going to sing a song. You can sing it. You can stand. You can stay seated. But I want you to posture yourself to be open to receiving his enjoyment. Like in your mind, even just saying the prayer, God, if you really enjoy me, can you tell me? God, if you really enjoy me, can you let me know? God, if you're really for me, can you, can you let me know that you are? So we're going to sing this song. Uh, we have, I think, two more here. But in your minds, open yourself up to the reality that a God who made everything enjoys you. Would you stand with me? Jesus. it's so important so deeply important that we know that you enjoy us that you are not disappointed with your children I pray this morning maybe for the first time that people in this room would begin to know the God who created everything enjoys them Jesus Christ can sing this, some of you can sit, but ask God to tell you how much he enjoys you.